I'm Warren Berkeley with the Laurel Heights Church of Christ in McAllen, Texas, and I'm here to provide the sermon for May the 23rd. And we're going to be working from 2 Samuel chapter 12. 2 Samuel chapter 12. In chapter 11 and 12 of 2 Samuel, you will discover a very sad section in the history of the life of King David. Everybody who reads the Bible is familiar with David in the Old Testament, in many ways a very good role model, an example of trust in God and obedience in our daily life. But also, everybody knows about the sin of David. The inspired writer did not cover it up. The inspired writers of Scripture make no effort to conceal that part of David's life or make any excuse for it. David was guilty of sexual immorality and then murder in the affair with Bathsheba and then his arrangement for her husband to die. And we've read about that. We've studied that before. Sermons have been delivered about all of that, and the last verse in 2 Samuel 11 states the very simple truth about this story. The thing David had done displeased the Lord. This is another part of the story that needs our attention. In 2 Samuel 12, I want to call to your attention. This is the story of the prophet Nathan going to David to rebuke him after this sin. And this passage is filled with good instruction for us, not only when you consider what Nathan said and how David reacted, but also when you consider what Nathan didn't say and how David didn't react. So let's read about this encounter where the Lord sent Nathan to David after David's sin with Bathsheba. I'm going to be reading this from the English Standard Version, 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 1 through 14. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. 
Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. Well, there there is so much here to talk about. I think it will do us good to consider what Nathan did not say, and how David did not react. Character is not only displayed by what we do and say, it is also displayed in what we do not do and what we do not say. So we're going to think about that. There's so much in this narrative. I preach this about every five or six years, and each time I return to the text, I find more to enrich my understanding of what's right. And I want to share that with you. I want us to take a few minutes and talk about what Nathan did not say, what the prophet Nathan, when he went to David, did not say. Let's make a list. Nathan did not say, other kings have done the same thing. David was not the first king or leader in history to commit adultery and then attempt to cover up. In Bible history, there was Shechem, a ruler who took a daughter of Jacob. The sin of Judah in Genesis 38, in the judges period, the sin of Samson, the Levite and his concubine in Leviticus 19. David was not the first man to do this, not the first ruler to become involved in immorality. But Nathan gave David no comfort. He made no effort to justify what David was guilty of. He did not say, it's all right, David. Others have acted the same way. It is an argument we often hear, perhaps an argument we have made. We look for comfort in vast numbers who have sinned in a manner like we have sinned, and that's foolish. 
The more we find and hear about, the better we feel about the sins we've committed because so many others have done the same thing. We measure ourselves by the world standard rather than the right standard. And such rationale not only has no atoning value, it is the devil's way to render us even more vulnerable for future sin. See, I cannot argue when I sin that it's not that bad because others have done the same or worse. No matter how few or many, I cannot make such an argument. It is not valid. It is extremely common for such an appeal to be made that since others have done the same, it isn't that bad. There is an inordinate scorekeeping that takes place but never provides justification. The Bible doesn't treat sin by the numbers. Nathan made no such appeal when he went to David. Number two, Nathan didn't say, your popularity is at its highest peak, so the people do not care. Again, it is very common in public life, in politics and entertainment and sports, to argue that your behavior is justified because the people like you anyway. Maybe you've heard some of that. The common thinking is people don't care about your private life. In fact, your fans or followers may appreciate the fact that you sin like they do. The argument says the behavior may be wrong, But if you still have your fan base or your popularity or your delegates, no big deal. There is a big difference between what people think and how they evaluate our behavior and what God has said and what God thinks. We may engage in behavior that is praised by the public, accepted by our friends, encouraged by our peers, that has nothing to do with God and his righteous judgment. How popular we are should never make us feel good about violating the righteous law of God. Nathan didn't come to David to offer him any comfort in his sin. He didn't say, it's all right, others have done the same thing. He didn't say, the people love you, so don't worry about it. Number three, Nathan didn't say, There is prosperity in the land. The economy is in good shape. The amount of money we have, the flow of cash, the good business we've perpetuated, the prosperity we have afforded for others, these financial and materialistic matters never reduce the guilt of our sin. So Nathan made no such economic argument to David to give David any comfort. Nor should we ever think that if the money is flowing good, the behavior that produced it is okay. That's corrupt. It's ungodly and places the emphasis in the wrong place entirely. And Nathan didn't say, this is about your private life. It doesn't relate to your function as king. You know, we are tempted to separate our lives into all of these neat little compartments and categories with unyielding separation. Any attempt at the artificial, that is vain. 
So there is my family life over here, my financial life is over here, my business life over there, my entertainment, my recreation, and then over in a little corner somewhere, there's the religious part of my life. A member of a church in Arkansas was selling pornography in his grocery store, and brethren went to him about this, and he said, now listen, there is church, and then over here there's business, and they're separate. No. No. The truth is, if you're a Christian, your commitment to the Lord is the most powerful influence in every aspect of your life. And if you live under the Lord's authority, submission to Him must govern all that you think and all that you do all the time in whatever context. The truth is, if you intend to obey the Lord, you will obey him in your business, in your family, and in every other function and aspect of your entire life on earth. And I want to say this, if you have good character and integrity, there is no activity in your life where that good character will be absent. If my character and behavior is governed by God, there's nothing I do. There is no activity or relationship where that good character will be absent. So Nathan didn't say to the guilty king, it's all right, David, this is about your private life. It doesn't relate to your work as king. No. And Nathan didn't say to David, David, you apparently have some sort of involuntary disorder or some sort of addiction. Nathan said no such thing. There are disorders. There are involuntary mental illnesses. Addiction, though related to choice, often requiring professional help. The problem is to take all sin and push that over into some category the world has identified in order to justify the sin. To remove the sin element by giving something a modern name and seeking comfort in nomenclature, renaming bad behavior. Nathan gave David no room to think in those terms. Every kind of behavior, all kinds of wrong choices today are explained or justified as some sort of involuntary addiction or disorder. Some category that comforts. The word disease has been expanded. I believe there are illnesses, there are psychological disorders, and addiction is no myth. But where we depart from God's word is to take behavior God has said is a sinful choice and try to explain that sin away for the comfort and ease of the sinner, perhaps to justify the continuation of wrong behavior. Nathan gave David nothing like that. So uh, in our society today, if this kind of thinking were widespread and applied to everything, a man is not a thief. He has a property acquisition disorder. Or an immature husband is not a wife beater. He is suffering from a chronic aggression syndrome. And now a man who was once regarded as a philanderer needs treatment for his sexual addiction disease 
that just came upon him suddenly. Many years ago, Dr. Carl Menninger in Kansas wrote a book, 1988, Whatever Became of Sin? Sometimes that's a good question. God sent Nathan to David to confront him with his sin, not comfort him in his sin. Nathan didn't talk to David about other kings or his popularity, the economy, and involuntary disorder. It is enlightening to consider what Nathan didn't say. Now, what did Nathan say? David, why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You have sinned. No comforting excuses, no spin, no effort to explain the sin in milder comforting terms. Nathan's message from God to David was, you are the man. You have sinned. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? How refreshing and plain Nathan was in his effort from God to bring this sinner to repentance. Now, part two of this sermon. Notice what David did not do. Notice what David did not do. He did not deny what he had done. When we are immature kids, this can become an automatic impulse, right? When we are charged with wrongdoing, we immediately say when we're kids, no, I didn't do it. Immediately, we claim we didn't do it. We know nothing about it, and we reject any criticism without thought or any self-examination. I didn't do it. I didn't see it done. I don't know anything about it. David, though he sinned, did not deny what he had done when Nathan spoke this rebuke. And David did not attack his accuser. Here's another immature tactic. When you are told of your sin, you claim you're being unfairly singled out for persecution. Or there is some conspiracy or something. People have it in for me. David did not attack Nathan. And he did not question the reputation of Bathsheba. This is another technique of distraction where a man is charged with immorality and he turns the whole matter over toward the woman, questioning her reputation or claiming he was unfairly seduced. David did not question the reputation or character of Bathsheba, and this was a case where two people made a wrong choice. He did not blame his political opponents. If you have read anything in the Bible about the life of David, you know there is no doubt he had political opponents. He had enemies. But when Nathan came to confront him with his sin, he did not blame his political opponents. What did David do when Nathan confronted him with his sin? What David did is described here in 2 Samuel 12. If you'll look again at verse 13, he said, I have sinned against the Lord. I have sinned against the Lord. Given the reality of the deed and the word of God that came through Nathan, there was nothing else to say. 
God would accept no excuses. There was not a matter of suspicion or rumor alone here. There was nothing else to say. The sin had been committed. God knew it. David said when Nathan came and spoke to him, I have sinned against the Lord. David confessed. David repented. And then he wrote about this. For instance, in the 32nd Psalm, blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. He said, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. Psalm 32, 4 and 5. Did you hear that? David said, I did not cover up my iniquity. Nathan did not cover up his rebuke. David did not cover up his confession. The only thing to say was, I have sinned against the Lord. Now, there may be some applications of these things in our nation, in our society, but I think we need to conclude this kind of study with self-examination. The reality of sin, the truth about sin, does not change from person to person. Whether you are a king or a prophet, you may be the president or a common laboring citizen, popular, unknown, rich or poor, young or old, the reality of sin and that which must be done about sin is universal. So when I read about the sin of David or I become aware of sin in the life of some public figure, Whatever observations I make about all of that and whatever I learn from all of that, I must eventually examine myself in the present. And if I'm guilty of sin, yet I make excuses or deny my guilt, I am just as wrong as anybody else living with unconfessed lingering sin. You see, nobody enjoys any exemption. The Lord has not granted to anybody, high or low, the freedom to sin, then excuse it or deny it. And when you consider the complete revelation we have, the full and sufficient sacrifice of Christ and the promises and motives of the gospel to excuse sin, to excuse sin is to incur more guilt. To deny your personal sin is to add more sin to sin and therefore more guilt. Verse 13 in 2 Samuel 12 describes the simple response that ought to be evoked at the very moment we become aware of our sin. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Have you sinned against the Lord? Have you admitted that sin? Have you let the devil help you devise and contrive all manner of excuses? Have you deceived yourself into thinking that time will somehow erase your sin without repentance? Do you try to push the idea that you have sinned out of your mind and eventually you don't remember it? David said to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. The subject of sin And personally facing sin should always take us to the truth about Jesus Christ and him crucified. I can't get out of sin on my own as determined 
as I may be, as competent as I think I am, as holy as I think I can become, as strong as my desire may be for heaven, I can't get out of sin without my personal response of penitent obedience to Jesus Christ. If that hits you in the heart right now, then you need to give the response given in Scripture. Thank you for listening.